Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And welcome to the New Statesman Special Edition podcast. We're going to talk about the local elections, what else, and the Metro Mayor results. We're going to talk about whether or not Emmanuel Macron is now the fittest president out there. And Stephen is going to make a huge apology for all the times that he's implied that Andy Burnham might be a little bit rubbish. Nino, emergency podcast. Except it's not really emergency podcast, Stephen. It's just a kind of luxury podcast because I wasn't here last week. Although I did enjoy all the uh, Helen substitutes, but you know. Yeah, it was like how I got news for you after the Coke and Hookers thing with Angus Staten. Except, of course, I was in Finland, not with Coke and Hookers. More for you. Let's talk about the local elections then, because I watched them, as I say, from Finland, which was quite interesting because I, you know, I didn't get the kind of blizzard of information. So I experienced it more like a normal human. I enjoyed your blogs very much, but I pulled out four headlines from them, right? One, UKIP collapse. Two, Lib Dems actually in trouble. Three, Labour in lots of trouble, but pockets of resilience, where you perhaps you wouldn't expect like Wales and the Metro mayors. And then there was a fourth as well. Oh, and the SNP being surprisingly resilient, given they've also been in government for 110 billion years. And you've been telling me loads about your belief about regression to the mean in elections. They didn't regress very hard towards the mean after their big wins. No, it's true. They did not. I mean, actually, the, the, a lot of the coverage of Scotland, I'm going to take them in reverse order. I think those are, are broadly the, the things I would I would pick out as well. And the, the SNP, the way their results have been covered is a really good example of scoreboard journalism. People go, oh, look, that number has gone down on, on 2015. Therefore, things are going badly for the SNP, which is is both true and, and false, right? But it's they, like the Michael Rosen thing about you know Tony Blair lost X million votes from nineteen ninety seven, and you go, yeah, he did because he had like a whopping great, like he had them to lose. That's yeah. what happens in politics. Yes, and 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 also as with all of these things, your the where you start your chronology um, massively shifts the impression you get. I mean, again, UKIP voters, which we'll discuss in more, more detail later, you have similar problems with, well, when do you start measuring who they vote for? Um, but what's actually happened in Scotland is in 2015, it was very clear if you if you, if you you voted yes in the 2014 referendum, you voted for the SNP. Their problem in 2016 was that they bled some votes to the Greens because the electoral system meant that wasn't a wasted vote, and that people who voted no, their vote became more efficient. And it's basically the same story in in twenty seventeen is of the of the unionist vote becoming more efficient and the main beneficiary of that being the Tories. Although the interesting thing is, Labour are going to lose a lot of votes even on their twenty fifteen Scottish performance in twenty seventeen. However, hostage of fortune alert, I would be astonished if they lost 
the seat they Edinburgh have. South. They have. And I would actually be... I would be less surprised by them winning more seats in Scotland than them losing the one they have, even though I expect their vote to collapse. That's bold, because no less a person than John Curtis's prediction for Scotland had them down to zero seats. I just think that what has happened since 2015 is a validation of the campaign that Ian Murray ran in Edinburgh South, which is to go, you don't want to refight the referendum. I'm a, I, love, I love being in the union. I don't want to do this again either. If you voted no, you've got to vote for me. And he has carved out enough of a profile because he's the only Labour MP in Scotland that I just think enough people in Edinburgh South who will go, I don't want another referendum. I'm going to vote him. That will mostly benefit the Tories. That will probably benefit Jo Swinson in her... So, Eastern but, Bartonshire. Yeah. Um, well, that reminds me, that brings us on next... I know we're not taking these exactly in uh, reverse order, but the same thing about the idea of, you know, the refer- we had the referendum is exactly the thing, I think, that's presumably the problem for the Lib Dems in England um, in their county council showing, right? Although there are, a, 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 you know, a small section of the population who are ardent Remainers want to overturn the result, there's a much bigger sway of people who didn't want it, didn't vote for it, but also don't really you know it hasn't gone terribly wrong yet so therefore kind of just think we should kind of crack on with it yeah and they they go we just need to sort of make the best of it and they buy into this yes entirely mythical idea that the size of Theresa may's majority matters at all uh, for the brexit deal we get there are a couple of other problems for them one than the people who want to um undo the referendum live um they basically live in the posh bit of safe Labour inner city seats. So they, in terms of where they, they, they made some uh, progress uh, in the local elections, they are on course to, to hurt, to bruise the ego of some Labour MPs in inner cities with like, you know, the kind of place where they're just like, yeah, I, I, I roll in the votes. Yeah, I could go around punching people and I would still win in a landslide. They will make some of those people go, they will, you know, they will only be able to roll in one bath worth of votes. Um, but but there are no marks in First Past the Post mm. for reducing Emily Thornberry's majority, reducing Heidi Alexander's majority. They actually did surprisingly badly in places like Cardiff Central, again, where you'd expect them to make a gain. They didn't really register any gains in, in Cheltenham, you know, in places they really were hoping and expecting to do well. In the wards which make up Cambridge itself, and this was the one which really shocked me because obviously we uh, we, we do uh, the Cambridge Literature Festival. While I was there, I thought, you know, I might as well go knock on some doors because I'm just that cool. And I my impression of it was that it was moving towards, well, A, moving towards the Liberal Democrats, but the Labour vote in Cherry Hinton felt quite soft to me. But in the county councils, the Lib Dems only narrowly won the whole of the city, and in the wards that make up that constituency, they were slightly behind. And you just think, well, maybe Julian Huppert's personal vote, which he undoubtedly does have, kind of a, an extra thousand, that may edge it over for them. So that, that is that bad for not... Labour then, because I know Cambridge is an example of a Lib Lab marginal, but actually the, all the predictions of things not being as horrible in terms of conservative overall majority for the left were predicated on the idea that the Liberals would take Tory seats. And now it looks like that number might be really quite limited. The thing that worries me about the, the, the UKIP collapse, and I take your point, actually, if you look at 2010 Lib Dem voters, what do they get? Vote share of, I can't say 3%, but I don't know if it's quite that small. But, you know, it, it, it certainly went up dramatically between 2010 and 2015. 
is that actually the number of people who are now, their economic class is now out of the equation in terms of their votes, which I think is a really bad sign for Labour, right? So it's not, I, people I talk to in Birmingham and I talk to people in London as well, you know, would still say things like, you know, I'm a Labour man or whatever. But I talked to one woman who worked in a bead shop in Birmingham Yardley and she said, well, look, I just, you know, I'm going to vote Tory. And it's about that, that standing up for the working man, you know, we don't bow down to anybody. And I thought, well, that's really weird because that's the kind of language I would have expected somebody to say. And then the end of that sentence would be, and that's why we've always voted Labour. And that's where that kind of non-elite thing that Theresa May's doing, the kind of not, you know, presenting herself as very blue collar, I think is 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 really dangerous for, for Labour in long term. Yeah, I mean so this is this is kind of my my problem with both the five million lost votes thesis and the um UKIP hurts the Tories thesis that you had under Ed Miliband, which isn't if you start one of your clocks in 20... Then there are very obvious reasons why describing everyone who voted Labour in 1997 as Labour mm. and describing everyone who voted Tory in 2010 as Tory is obviously a bit of a mistake because those were both remarkably good election nights for those two parties. If you look at the longer UKIP journey, a lot of these people voted Labour in 2005, Labour in 2001. Obviously, some of them were too young to vote Labour in 2001. And the, the uh, my instinct is, obviously, these voters would be different because, you know, people age. But in terms of the demographic cohort, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these, um, I used to vote Labour, um, maybe I voted UKIP or maybe I've gone straight to the Tories, aren't actually fairly similarly demographically to the people who voted Conservative in 1983, 87, 1992, which obviously is quite bleak in terms of what that means in terms of the electoral math, but I'm not sure if that if we are actually seeing a genuine permanent realignment of, of the right. Yeah, I think, and also I just think that's something that is very contingent on the two leaders that you have, right? It's I'm not sure you want to extrapolate to, to a party level when it's so dependent on Theresa May as a person and Jeremy Corbyn as a person. You rerun that with a different Tory leader and a different Labour leader, and I think you could end up, even at this election, with completely different results. The underlying yeah. shifts are probably being entirely subsumed in the fact that Theresa May is incredibly popular Popular, Jeremy Corbyn is incredibly unpopular. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think the interesting thing, so I have just at the time of writing just published my um, my first thoughts, having looked in detail at the results from the Metro mayoral elections, because some hero in one of the combined authorities in uh, the Greater Manchester has not only published all of the ward results, they've grouped them by constituency, which makes kind of pulling stuff out of them re really easy. Unfortunately, no one else in any of the other combined authorities But cut to the chase, what so. you've discovered from this is that Andy Burnham might not be the hero we want, but he's the hero we need. I mean, Andy Burnham, yeah, it, it turns out. Um, I mean, so this, I always liked Andy Burnham as a human being, right, in my defence. I actually, you know, in my previous life as a Labour activist, I did actually work on his 2010 campaign. So it turns out I've actually become stupider since 2010. But also the thing is, and we're talking with John Elledge about this this morning, is that the things that people criticised him for, you know, the flip-flopping, staying in the, you know, not being publicly disloyal to Corbyn in order to get the, the nomination, all of that stuff, the kind of slipperiness of it, is what has it turns out that's yeah you might call it slippery or you might call it being a, an effective politician in the same way that Sadiq Khan tacked quite hard to the left during the selection process and then back to the centre and gave an interview to the Mail on Sunday as soon as he was selected and said you know I'm incredibly patriotic and and did lots of stuff to diffuse the idea that as a Muslim he was you know in any way sort of scary. I also think I mean so obviously the problem with Andy was his appalling 2015 leadership campaign. However, the the two central mistakes that defined that campaign 
were two entirely, in my view, correct calls. The first was that you had to be as far to the left as possible to win the uh, the Labour leadership. If it hadn't election. been for that pesky Jeremy Corbyn. And the second, yeah, and the second was you had to um, basically say, look, we spent too much, and just concede and move on in terms of the economic legacy of New Labour, which is actually basically what Corbyn has done with his speech. Oh, they didn't regulate enough. Oh, they they spent yeah they they spent unwisely, right? You you do have to try and cauterize that wound and move on. Now, obviously, Liz Kendall never came round to the idea that you had to attack to the left. And Yvette Cooper still has not come round to the idea that you have to go, do you know what, we probably shouldn't have been spending as much 067. Which, okay, yes, economically is nonsense. However, a lot of people who in the parliamentary party who don't want to say they spent too much in the past are happy to make it harder for people to come here now, which hurts us economically in the present. So I don't really get how they reconcile those two things. But Andy's only problem is, whereas every other pundit was able to basically come to those conclusions in the same order he did, right? Uh, and then, so, so he basically went, oh, I've locked up my left flank, therefore I can start moving to right to the right. Oh, crap, I haven't moved, locked up my left flank. I need to hurry back. And he failed to get back in time. But I look at the stuff I was writing in that period before Corbyn had the numbers on the ballot, and I was, you know, and we were all going, you know, Andy has done a, a masterful job. He's he's earned his credibility on the left as health secretary. He's locked up, you know, the big name endorsements. Your Harry Leslie Smiths, your your um, oh the the guy who shares the weird um graphics, uh, Owen Clark, right? He locked up the support of, of. Oh yeah, he had, hadn't he? Of, Which must have been really upsetting for Doctor Owen Clark that he couldn't then hop on the Corbyn train. But he yeah, already... he'd he'd done all of that, and then he was kind of draining the oxygen from Liz Kendall and Yvette Cooper's critique of him by moving to the to the, to the centre. Mm-hmm. And he was using, turning things which I think could have been a negative, like his time as Chief Secretary of the Treasury, by going, look, I was trying to get the spending under control. <laughs> now, of course, we all know that when Andy Burnham was Chief Secretary of the Treasury, Gordon said jump, and he said how high. But he was, you know, he was fighting a campaign that lots of people thought were very good. Then Corbyn announced, and... Andy, to his credit, did then try and get people to not put him on the ballot. So I kind of think in some ways he sort of had the problem that he made the same mistakes and everyone analysing the race did, but without the light warm glow. Then it doesn't matter what you thought. It doesn't really matter what I thought at the end at the start of the election, as long as you get in the right position for for the end of it. And what what these results did show, I mean, they weren't just better than a generic Labour candidate. Um, unlike Sadiq's in 2016, which were just generic Labour candidate apart from Tooting and, and Jewish voters, where he'd done a lot of hard work and outreach to, to kind of repair the damage done by Ken Livingston in 2008 and 2012. Those were the results Labour would need to get nationwide if they were to have any chance, really, of winning in the locals. So he won the wards which make up Gray and Brady's very safe Conservative seat. They won the Conservative-held marginal of, I want to say, Barry North? By yeah, by about four thousand votes, they won the Conservative-held marginal of Bolton West by eight thousand votes. These are the because the government will under will overperform its local electorate. These are the kind of gains you need to be making to be in a in a within a shout of taking those seats back. So really, the the take home I have from those results, much to my surprise, to be honest, um, is that Andy Burnham, it turns out, was probably the right call in twenty fifteen. Yeah. You heard it here first and probably last. But let's just quickly dwell on those other Metro Mayor results. So terrible result for Labour and Tees Valley, which they might have expected to win. You know, very Labour area and by all accounts a very good candidate. Against a a joke candidate, right? I mean, like, Ben Houghton was was running as a kind of like, lol, we all know I'm going to lose, let's re-nationalise the airport. 
Um, and then a loss from Sean Simon to Andy Street in Birmingham, by which I think is that the one which proved that the idea of progressive alliances, if we didn't already know it was cobblers, is cobblers because the second preferences of Lib Dems and Greens went disproportionately to Andy Street, right? Um, and then Steve Rotherham. Steve Rotherham sort of won by what you'd kind of was sort of in some ways the kind in, of shoey of all shoey in candidates like that should have been a shoey in. Right? But he also sort of in in many ways was closest to the kind of control group Labour candidate as it were in that he did about what you well obviously so so did Sean Simon and, and Sue Jeffrey. And the selection battle there is really interesting, isn't it? Liverpool Walton, his old seat, because he seems to have secured some kind of promise that they won't parachute in a, a Corbyn uh, supporter. They will instead go for a quote-unquote local candidate. Well, this, this is the interesting question, because... Um, so, he wanted guarantees about who would fill his seat. I have no idea uh, whether or not... Because, obviously, from Steve Rotherham's perspective, right, he's been Corbyn's PPS, he was in that kind of left bit that backed Andy Burnham. So he will kind of want someone who is of his politics, but he also will probably not want someone who's been parachuted in. Dan Carden, who is uh, aide to Len McCluskey, is, is from is from from Liverpool, so he's local. It kind of semi-makes sense, and that would fit tick all of those boxes. However, yeah, I, I, I'm, I don't have, you know... A, particularly close personal relationship with with Steve himself. So I'm going on what other people in Unite and other people in Liverpool are telling me, both of which kind of sharply contradict. But basically, the reason why he has now stepped down, having gone, look, I'm till I get assurances I'm not going to, is whoever is the candidate there will basically have been given the nod as someone who was A-OK. That's been the case with a lot of people who stepped down this time. So Graham Allen, for example, stepped down, wanted someone local, got someone uh, local, and, and otherwise would have gone, well, you can carry me out in a coffin then. Um, I think probably before we end, we should just take this moment to have perhaps a few seconds of high-spirited dancing and ululating in honour of Emmanuel Macron, who has won the French presidential election by unmargin thumping. Um, yeah, I do French now. That's the thing that I do. Um, I think it's a really interesting result. Again, classic overinterpretation now happening, right? It's uh, everything's fine. The Liberal Centre's back. You know, woohoo! Everything's great again. Um, but it's probably bad news for Britain, right? In terms of our Brexit negotiations. So I actually disagree with everyone else on this, right? Pourquoi? I, so one, the the idea that if Le Pen had I mean, I feel that this whole idea of, like, if things go bad in the EU and the Eurozone, it's good for us, is a bit like this myth of the last five years when there was a crisis in the Eurozone and Cameron would sit there going, thank goodness we're not in that. And it's like, yeah, but we sell to that. Like, so you can draw a direct line between, you know, recession and, and in parts of the Eurozone and slower growth here, right? If the Eurozone was buying more stuff from us, we'd, we'd be better off. But I think so, there's also that kind of thing that's just the simple thing with Trump, right? Which is that uh, Le Pen might have just been a lot more difficult to predict uh, and a lot more consumed with her own problems. So I think that is more evidence against the thesis that that would have been really helpful for Britain is that she might just have been a bit, you know, cray. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, and, and ultimately... It, it, the good thing is, is it probably does increase the confidence around the European project. The voice is going. Ah, so you know, the we need to, we need to discourage others from others from leaving. I think, yeah, if you imagine a situation where after Brexit, the Eurobarometer surveys had moved in a more Eurosceptic direction. Van der Bellen, the Green candidate in Austria, had not defeated uh, Van der Bellen or whatever the fascist Norbert Hoffer. real name was. Um, <laughs> right, Norbert Hoffer. Um, if you didn't have a situation where Angela Merkel, I mean, 
I'm not going to have my rant about why Angela Merkel is not actually a good thing, but I will save that for another <gasps> time. But um, yeah, if Angela Merkel hat didn't look like she was going to you know sail to victory or be replaced by another pro-European, um, if if uh, Mark Rutte hadn't won in in the Netherlands, but as it is, the idea that you need to punish Britain is quite small. The only problem, of course, is. In terms of this, oh, why would people leave? We've got all this great culture. It does massively increase the attractiveness of France as a destination for capital. Because if he gets a majority in the legislative elections, or if there's a kind of hung part with Enmarche as the largest grouping and kind of enough of the, the right of the Socialist Party and some, some Republicans uh, still knocking around, mm. then you can see how you have a situation where many more uh, financial institutions leave the United Kingdom than might otherwise have done so. And not least because Paris is, let's be honest, a bit more banging than Frankfurt. Well, I mean, isn't everywhere? <gasps> yeah, probably. Um, we, I think we should probably wrap up on the basis is an extra bonus emergency, non-emergency podcast, but that means we haven't got time to talk about Labour's um, policy announcements. Uh, but do you know what? We'll be back. We will be back. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. We're produced and mixed by India Bork today. And if you want to hear more from me, and why wouldn't you, I'm hosting a New Statesman event on what Trump means for the world. That's on May the 23rd. You can find out more at newstatesman.com forward slash events. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.